19. The decorations and equipment were of that rich sumptuousness attained only in the latest and most magnificent American hotels, there was music, and as we made our way along we caught a glimpse, in passing, of an attractive supper room, with small table lights casting their soft radiance upon white shirt fronts and the faces of pretty girls, in all it was a place to make glad the heart of the weary traveler, and to cause him to wonder whether his dress suit would be wrinkled when he took it from his trunk. Behind the imposing marble desk stood several impeccable clerks, and to one of these I addressed myself, giving our names and mentioning the fact that we had telegraphed for rooms. I am not sure that this young man wore a braided cutaway and a white carnation, I only know that he affected me as hotel clerks in braided cutaways and white carnations always do. While I spoke he stood a little way back from the counter, his chin up, his gaze barely missing the top of my hat his nostrils seeming to contract with that expression of dubiousness assumed by delicate noses which sense, long before they encounter it, the aroma of unworthiness, not a room in the house, he said, then, as though to forestall further parley, he turned and spoke with gracious lightness to one of his own rank and occupation who, at the request of my companion, was ascertaining whether letters were awaiting us, but we telegraphed two days ago, I protested desperately, can't help it, hardware convention, everything taken, over my shoulder I heard from my companion a sound, half sigh, half groan, which echoed the cry of my own heart, I felt this coming, he murmured, didn't you notice all these people with ribbons on them, there's never any room in a hotel where everybody's wearing ribbons, it's like a horse show, they get the ribbons and we get the gate, surely, I faltered, you can let us have one small room, impossible, he answered brightly, We've turned away dozens of people this evening. Then, I said, abandoning hope. Perhaps you will suggest some other hotel? I once heard a woman, the most perfect parvenu I ever met, speak of her poor relations in a tone exactly similar to that in which the clerk now spoke the names of two hotels. Having spoken, he turned and passed behind the partition at one end of the marble counter. My companion and I stood there for a moment looking despondently at each other. Then, without a word, We retreated through that gorgeous lobby, feeling like sad remnants of a defeated Yankee army. Again we motored through the bright streets, but only two successive disappointments, for both hotels mentioned by the austere clerk were turning them away. Our chauffeur now came to our aid, mentioning several small hotels, and in one of these, the Granada, we were at last so fortunate as to find lodgings. It began to look like you'd have to put up at the Roden. The chauffeur smiled as we took our bags out of the car and settled with him. The Roden? Yes. He returned, best ventilated hotel in the United States. Next day when the hotel Roden was pointed out to us we appreciated the witticism. For the Roden Mizor was at the time of our visit nearly the steel skeleton of a building which, we were informed, had for some years stood in finished owing to disagreements among those concerned with its construction. As for the Granada, though a modest place, it was new and clean. The clerk was amiable, the beds comfortable, and if our rooms were too small to admit our trunks, they were, at all events, outside rooms, each with a private bath, at a rate of one per day apiece. Never in any hotel had I felt that I was getting so much for my money. Next morning, after breakfast, we set out to see the city, having repeatedly heard of Birmingham as the Pittsburgh of the South. We expected cold daylight to reveal the sooty signs of her industrialism but in this we were agreeably disappointed. By day as well as by night the city is pleasing to the eye, 
and it is a fact worth noting that the downtown buildings of Atlanta which is not an industrial city are streaked and dirty, whereas those of Birmingham are clean the reason for this being that the mills and furnaces of Birmingham are far removed from the heart of the town, whereas locomotives belch black smoke into the very center of Atlanta's business and shopping district. Moreover, the metropolis of Alabama is better laid out than that of Georgia. The streets of Birmingham are wide, and the business part of the city, lying upon a flat terrain, is divided into a large, even squares. From this district the chief residence section mounts by easy, graceful grades into the hills to the southward. Because of these grades, and the curving drives which follow the contours of the hills, and the vistas of the lower city, and the good modern houses, and the lawns and trees and shrubbery and breezes, this highlands region is reminiscent of a similar residence district in Portland. Oregon which is to say that it is one of the most agreeable districts of the kind in the United States, while up on the hillside, Highland Avenue wins a charming course between pleasant homes, with here and there a little residence park branching off to one side, and here and there a small municipal park occupying an angle formed by a sharp turn in the driveway, and if you follow the street far enough you will presently see the house of the Birmingham Country Club, standing upon its green hilltop, amidst rolling, partly wooded golf links. Above the road, nor is the country club at the summit of this range of hills, back of it rise other roads, the most picturesque of them being Altamont Road, which runs to the top of Red Mountain, reaching a height about equivalent to that of the cornice line of Birmingham's tallest building. The houses of this region are built on streets which, like some streets of Portland, are terraced into the hillside, and the resident of an upper block can almost look down the chimneys of his neighbors on the block below. The view commanded from these mountain perches does not suggest that the lower city runs up into the highlands. It seems to be a separate place, down in a distant valley, and the sense of its remoteness is heightened by the thin veil of gray smoke which wafts from the tall smokestacks of far-off iron furnaces, softening the serrated outlines of the city and wrapping its tall buildings in the industrial equivalent for autumn haze. That night the scene from the highlands is even more spectacular. For at brief intervals the blowing of a converter in some distant steel plant illuminates the heavens with a great hot glow, like that which rises and falls about the crater of a volcano in eruption. Thus the city's vast affairs are kept before it by day in a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. Iron and steel dominate Birmingham's mind, activities and life. The very ground of Red Mountain is red because of the iron ore that it contains and those who reside upon the charming slopes of this hill do not own their land in fee simple, but subject always to the mineral rights of mining companies. The only other industry of Birmingham which is to be compared, in magnitude or efficiency, with the steel industry is that of cutting in fat dances, all through the south it is carried on, but whereas in such cities as Memphis, New Orleans and Atlanta, men show a little mercy to the stranger realizing that, as he is presumably unacquainted with all the ladies at a dance, he cannot retaliate in kind Birmingham is merciless and prosecutes the pestilential practice unremittingly, even going so far as to apply the universal service principle and call out her high school youths to carry on the work. Before I went to certain dances in Birmingham I felt that high school boys ought to be kept at home at night, but after attending these dances I realized that such restriction was altogether inadequate, and that the only way to deal with them effectively would be to pickle them in vitriol, where, in other cities of the South, I had managed to dance as much as half a dance without interruption. I never danced more than 20 feet with one partner in Birmingham, nor did my companion, 
Our host was energetic in presenting us to a ladies of infinite pulchritude and statewide terpsichorean reputation, but we would start to tread a measure with them, only to have them swiftly snatched from us by some spindle-necked, long-wrist, big-boned, bull-eared high school youth, in a dinner suit which used to fit him when it was new, six months ago. As we would start to dance the lady would say, You all are strangers, aren't you? We would reply that we were. Where do you come from? New York. Then, because the hardware convention was being held in town at the time, she would continue, I reckon you all are hardware men, but that was as far as the conversation ever got. Just about the time that she began to reckon we were hardware men a mandatory hand would be laid upon us, and before we had time to defend ourselves against the hardware charge, the lady would be wafted off in the arms of some predatory youth who ought to have been at home considering Ponza Norum. Had we indeed been hardware men? And had we had our hardware with us, they could have done with fewer teachers in the high schools of that city after the night of our first dance in Birmingham, up in the hills, some miles back of the country club, on the banks of a large artificial lake, stands the new clubhouse of the Birmingham Motor and Country Club, and around the lake runs the club's two and a half mile speedway, elsewhere is the Robot Golf Club, the links of which are admitted, even in Atlanta to be excellent the one possible objection to the course of the Birmingham Country Club being that it is sweet only to play with irons. I mention these golfing matters not because they interest me, but because they may interest you. I am not a golfer. I played the game for two seasons, then I decided to try to lead a better life. The first time I played I did quite well, but thence onward my game declined until, toward the last, crowds would collect to hear me play. When I determined to abandon the game I did not burn my clubs or break them up, according to the usual custom, but instead gave them to a man upon whom I wished to retaliate because his dog had been a member of my family. Small wonder that all golf clubs have extensive bars. It is not hard to understand why men who realize that they have become incurable victims of the insidious habit of golf should wish to drown the thought in drink, but in Birmingham they can't do it not, at least, at bars. Alabama has beaten her public bars into soda fountains and quick lunch rooms, and though her club bars still look like real ones, the drinks served are so soft that no splash occurs when reminiscent tears drop into them. When we were in Alabama each citizen who so desired was allowed by law to import from outside the state a small allotment of strong drink for personal use, but the red tape involved in this procedure had already discouraged all but the most ardent drinkers, and those found it next to impossible even by hoarding their lonesome quarts, and pooling supplies with their convivial friends, to provide sufficient alcoholic drink for a real party. We met in Birmingham but one gentleman whose cellars seemed to be well stocked, and the tales of ingenuity and exertion by which he managed to secure ample supplies of liquor were such as to lead us to believe that this matter had become, with him, an occupation to which all other business must give second place. It was this gentleman who told us that, since the state went dry, the ancient form, RSVP, on social invitations, had been revised to BWHP, signifying, bring whiskey in hip pocket, to the BWHP, habit he himself strictly adhered, one night, when we chanced to meet him in a downtown club, he drew a flask from a hip pocket, and invited us to, have something, what is it, asked my companion, scotch, when my companion had helped himself he passed the flask to me, but I returned it to the owner, explaining that I did not drink scotch whiskey. What do you drink? He asked. Bourbon. Here at Island, he returned, 
drawing a second flask from the other hip pocket. How well, too, do I remember the long, delightful evening upon which my companion and I sat in an Atlanta club with a group of the older members, the week before Georgia went bone dry. There, as in Alabama before 1915, there had been pretended prohibition, but now the bars of leading clubs were being closed, and convivial men were looking into the future with despair. One of the gentlemen was a justice of the Supreme Court of the state, and I remember his wistful declaration that prohibition would fall hardest upon the older men. When a man is young, he said, he can be lively and enjoy himself without drinking, because he is full of animal spirits. But we older men aren't bubbling over with liveliness. We can't dance, or don't want to, and we lack the stimulus which comes of falling continually in love. My great pleasure is to sit of an evening. Here at a table in the cafe of this club, conversing with my friends, that is where prohibition is going to hurt me. I shall not see my old friends any more. The others protested at this somber view, but the judge gravely shook his head, saying, You don't believe me, but I know whereof I speak, for I have been through something like this, in a minor way, before. A good many years ago I was one of a little group of congenial men to organize a small club. We had comfortable quarters and we used to drop in at night, much as we have been doing of late years here, and had the kind of talks that are tonic to the soul. Of course we had liquor in the club, but there came a time when, for some reason or other I think it was some trouble over a license we closed our bar. We didn't think it was going to make a great difference, but it did. The men began to stop coming in and before long the club ceased to exist. It won't be like that here. This club will go on, but we won't come here. We won't want to sit around a table, like this, and drink ginger ale and sarsaparilla, and even if we do, the talk won't be so good. The thing that makes me downcast is not that liquor is going, but that we are really parting this week. Everyone knows that the abuse of drink does harm in the world, but these pious prohibitionists are not of the temperament to understand how alcohol ministers to the aesthetic side of certain natures. It gives us better companions and makes us better companions for others. It stimulates our minds, enhances our appreciations, sharpens our wit, loosens our tongues, and saves brilliant conversation from becoming a lost art. My sympathies went out to the judge. It has always seemed to me a pity that the liquor question has resolved itself into a fight between extremists for I think the wine and beer people might survive if they were not tied up with the distillers. And I do not believe that any considerable evil comes of drinking wine or beer. Nevertheless it must be apparent to everyone who troubles to investigate, that prohibition invariably works great good wherever it is made effective. Take, for example, Birmingham. There was one year I believe it was 1912 when there was an average of more than one murder a day, for every working day in the year, in the county in which Birmingham is located. On one famous Saturday night there were 19 felonious assaults 16 by Negroes and 3 by whites, from which about a dozen deaths resulted two of those killed having been policemen. All this has changed with prohibition. Killings are now comparatively rare. Arrests have diminished to a less than a third of the former average, whether for grave or petty offenses, and the receiving jail, which was formerly packed like a pig pen every Saturday night, now stands almost empty, while the city jail, which used continually to house from 120 to 150 offenders, has diminished its average population to 30 or 35. Chapter XXXVII Busy Birmingham The fact that a man may shut off his motor and coast downhill from his home to his office in the lower part of Birmingham, is not without symbolism, 
Birmingham is all business. If I were to personify the place, it would be in the likeness of a man I know a big, powerful fellow with an honest blue eye and an expression in which self-confidence, ambition, and power are blended. Like Birmingham, this man is a little more than 40 years of age. Like Birmingham, he has built up a large business of his own. And, like Birmingham, he is a little bit naive in his pride of success. His life is divided between his office and his home and it would be difficult to say for which his devotion is the greater. He talks business with his wife at breakfast and dinner, and on their Sunday walks. He brings his papers home at night and goes over them with her. For, though her specialty is bringing up the children, she is deeply interested in his business and often makes suggestions which he follows. This causes him to admire her intensely, which he would not necessarily do were she merely a good wife and mother. He has no hobbies or pastimes. True. He plays golf, but with him golf is not a diversion. He plays because he finds the exercise increases his efficiency. Efficiency is perhaps his favorite word, and because many of his commercial associates are golfers, and he can talk business with them on the links. His house is pleasant and stands upon a good-sized city lot. It is filled with very shiny mahogany furniture and strong-colored portieres and sofa cushions. It is rather more of a house than he requires, for his tastes are simple but he has a feeling that he ought to have a large house, for the same reason that he and his wife ought to dress expensively that island out of respect, as it were, to his business. One of his chief treasures is an automatic piano, upon which he rolls off selections from Wagner's operas. He likes the music of the great German because, as he has often told me, it stirs his imagination, thereby helping him to solve business problems and make business plans. The thing he most abhors is general conversation, and he is never so amusing so pathetically and unconsciously amusing as when trying to take part in general conversation and at the same time to conceal the writhings of his tortured spirit. There is but one thing which will drive him to attempt the feat, and that is the necessity of making himself agreeable to some man, or the wife of some man, from whom he wishes to get business. The census of 1910 gave Birmingham a population of 132.000, and it is estimated that since that time the population has increased by 50.000. Birmingham not only knows that it is growing, but believes in trying to make ready in advance for future growth. It gives one the impression that it is rather ahead of its housing problems than behind them. Its area, for instance, is about as great as that of Boston or Cleveland and its hotels may be compared with the hotels of those cities. If it has not so many clubs as Atlanta, it has, at least, all the clubs it needs, and if it has not so many skyscrapers as New York, it has several which would fit nicely into the Wall Street district. Moreover, the tall buildings of Birmingham lose nothing in height by contrast with the older buildings, three or four stories high, which surround them giving the business district something of that look which hangs about a boy who has outgrown his clothing, nor are the vehicles and street crowds, altogether in consonance, as yet, with the fine office buildings of the city, for many of the motors standing at the curb have about them that gray, rural look which comes of much mud and infrequent washing, and the idlers who lean against the rich facades of granite and marble are entirely out of the picture for they look precisely like the idlers who lean against the wooden posts of country railroad station platforms. Such curious contrasts as these may be noted everywhere. For instance, Birmingham has been so busy paving the streets that it seems quite to have forgotten to put up street signs. Also, not far from the majestic Two-Wheeler Hotel, 
and the imposing apartment building called the Ridgely, the front of which occupies a full block, is a park so ill-kept that it would be a disgrace to the city but for the obvious fact that the city is growing and wide awake, and will, of course, attend to the park when it can find the time. Here are, I believe, the only public monuments Birmingham contains. One is a Confederate monument in the form of an obelisk, and the other two are statues erected in memory of Mary A. Cahalan, for many years principal of the Powell School, and of William Elias B. Davis, a distinguished surgeon. Workers in these fields are too seldom honored in this way, and the spirit which prompted the erection of these monuments is particularly creditable, sad to say. However, both effigies are wretchedly placed and are in themselves exceedingly poor things. Art is something, indeed, about which Birmingham has much to learn. So far as I could discover, no such thing as an art museum has been contemplated. But here again the critic should remember that, whereas art is old, Birmingham is young. She is as yet in the stage of development at which cities think not of art museums, but of municipal auditoriums, and with the latter subject, at least, she is now concerning herself. Even in the city's political life contrasts are not wanting, for though the town is Republican in sentiment, it proves itself Southern by voting the Democratic ticket, and it is interesting to note further that the commission by which it is governed had as one of its five members, when we were there, a socialist, and other curious and individual touches contributed by the soda fountain lunch rooms which abound in the city, and which, I judge, arrived with the disappearance of barroom lunch counters. In connection with many of the downtown soda fountains there are cooking arrangements, and business lunches are served. The roads leading out of the city in various directions had many dangerous grade crossings, and accidents must be of common occurrence, at all events. I had never known a city in which cemeteries and undertaking establishments were so widely advertised. In the streetcars, for instance, I observe the cheerful placards of one Wallace Johns, undertaker, who promises all the attention you would expect from a friend, and I was informed that Mr. Johns possesses business cards for restricted use only bearing the gay legend, I'll get you yet. As to schools the city is well off. Dr. J. H. Phillips, superintendent of public schools has occupied his post probably as long as any school superintendent in the country. He organized the city school system in 1883, beginning with seven teachers, as against 750 now employed. The colored schools are reported to be better than in most southern cities. Of the general status of the Negro in Birmingham I cannot speak with authority. As in Atlanta, Negroes are sometimes required to use separate elevators in office buildings, and, as everywhere south of Washington, the Birmingham street cars give one end to whites and the other two Negroes, but whereas Negroes use the back of the car in Atlanta, they use the front in Birmingham. It was attempted, at one time, to reverse this order, for reasons having to do with draft and ventilation, but the people of Birmingham had become accustomed to the existing arrangement and objected to the change. After all, one gentleman said to me, in speaking of this matter, it is not important which end of the car is given to the nigger. The main point is that he must sit where he is told. The means by which the Negro vote is eliminated in various southern states are generally similar, though Alabama has, perhaps, been more thorough in the matter than some other states. The importance of this issue to the southern white man is very great, for if all Negroes were allowed to vote the control of certain states would be in Negro hands. To the southerner such an idea is intolerable, and it is my confident belief that if the state of Alabama were resettled by men from Massachusetts, and the same problems were presented to those men, 
they would be just as quick as the white Alabamans of today to find means to suppress the Negro vote. With all my heart I wish that such an exchange of citizens might temporarily be effected, for when the immigrants from Massachusetts move back to their native New England, after an experience of the Black Belt, they would take with them an understanding of certain aspects of the Negro problem which they had never understood, an understanding which, had they possessed it sixty or seventy years ago, might have brought about the freeing of slaves by government purchase a course which Lincoln advocated and which would probably have prevented the Civil War, and thereby saved millions upon millions of money, to say nothing of countless lives, had they even understood the problems of the South at the end of the Civil War, the horrors of Reconstruction might have been avoided, and I cannot too often reiterate that, but for Reconstruction we should not be perplexed, today, by the unhappy, soggy mass of political inertia known as the Solid South. I asked a former state official how the Negro vote had been eliminated in Alabama, at first, he said, we used to kill them to keep them from voting, when we got sick of doing that we began to steal their ballots, and when stealing their ballots got to troubling our consciences we decided to handle the matter legally, fixing it so they couldn't vote. I inquired as to details. He explained, it seems that in 1901 a constitutional convention was held, at which it was enacted that, in order to be eligible for life to vote, citizens must register during the next two years. There were, however, certain qualifications prescribed for registration. A man must be of good character, and must have fought in a war, or be the descendant of a person who had fought. This enactment, known as the Grandfather Clause, went far toward the elimination of the Negro, as an additional safeguard. However, an educational clause was added, but the educational requirement did not become effective at once, as that would have made illiterate whites ineligible as voters. Not until the latter were safely registered under the Grandfather Clause, was the educational clause applied, and as, under this clause, the would-be voter must read and write to the satisfaction of his examiner, the Negro's chance to get suffrage was still more reduced. The United States Supreme Court has, I believe, held that the educational clause does not constitute race discrimination, as though the above measures were not sufficient. It is further required that, in order to vote at November elections in Alabama, voters must pay a small voluntary poll tax. This tax, however, must be paid each year before February 1st that island about nine months before elections actually take place. The Negro has never been distinguished for his foresightness with a dollar, and, to make matters harder for him, this tax is cumulative from the year 1901, so that a man who wishes to begin to vote this year, and can qualify in other respects, must pay a tax amounting to nearly $20. These measures give Alabama, as my informant put it, a very exclusive electorate, with a population of approximately two millions. The greatest number of votes ever cast by the state was 125.000. Of this number, 531 votes were those of Negroes, representing a colored population of 840.000. The gentleman who explained these matters also told me a story illustrative of the old-time Southerners' attitude toward the Negro in politics. During Reconstruction, when Alabama's legislature was about one-third white and two-thirds Negro, a fine old gentleman who had been a slaveholder and was an experienced parliamentarian, was attempting to preside over the legislature. In this he experienced much difficulty, his greatest pedinoir being a Negro member, full of oratory, who continually interrupted other speakers, realizing that this was a part of the new order of things. 
the presiding officer tried not to allow his irritation to get the better of him, and to silence the objectionable man in parliamentary fashion. The member will kindly come to order, he repeated over and over, rapping with his gavel. The member will kindly come to order. After this had gone on for some time without effect, the old gentleman's patience became exhausted. He laid down his gavel, arose to his feet, glared at the irrepressible member, and, shaking his finger savagely, shouted, Sit down, you blankety-blank-black-blankety-blank, whereupon the negro dropped instantly to his seat and was no more heard from. Chapter XXXIX An allegory of achievement to visit Birmingham without seeing an iron and steel plant would be like visiting Rome without seeing the Forum. Consequently my companion and I made application for permission to go through the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company's plant, at Ensley, on the outskirts of the city. When the permission was refused us we attacked from another angle using influence and were refused again. Next we called upon a high official of the company, and as we had, of course, done in making our previous requests for admission to the plant explained our errand, though this gentleman received us with the utmost courtesy. He declared that the company desired no publicity, and plainly indicated that he was not disposed to let us into the plant. I'll tell you what the trouble island, said my companion to me. This company is a part of the United States Steel Corporation, and in the old muckraking days it was thoroughly raked. They think that we have come down here full of passionate feeling over the poor, downtrodden working men and the great, greedy octopus. What makes you think that? Well, we are a writer and an artist. Lots of writers and artists have made good livings by teaching magazine readers that it is dishonest for a corporation, or a corporation official, to prosper, that the way to integrity is through insolvency, that the word company is a term of reproach, while corporation is a foul epithet, and trust blasphemy. What shall we do? We must make it clear to these people, he said, that we had no mission. We must satisfy them that we are not reformers that we didn't come to dig out a red-hot story but to see red-hot rails rolled out, pursuing this course, we were successful, all that any official of the company required of us was that we be open-minded, the position of the company, when we came to understand it, was simply that it did not wish to facilitate the work of men who came down with pencils, paper, and preconceived, views, deliberately to play the great aim.